Hello and welcome to the Deep State Consciousness Podcast. Today I'm joined by Claire Beckel. Claire is a creative attachment therapist working with children and expectant mothers in the southwest of England. And I know Claire from the work of Timothy Freak. We attended these mystical non-dual groups together. So today I'm going to ask her about the work she does and the influence spirituality does or doesn't have upon that. Claire, good morning. Good morning, Richard. A creative attachment therapist. I think the, the only place to start is with an explanation of what that is. Mm, good question. Um, good start, rather. So um, I trained and qualified as a play therapist. Um, and out of that has sort of some branches of work have, have come from that, which have led me to the title Creative Attachment Therapist. Can I just uh, pause you, Claire, um, to explain what a play therapist is as well, so we don't just skip over that? Sure. So play therapy um, is a way of working with children. It's therapy, obviously, for children, and it recognises that play is the natural language of children. So the play therapist creates um, uh, an environment, a space with lots of resources for play where the child is able to come and explore and uh, yes, sort of be led by, uh, follow their kind of desire for play. And we use that as the basis of their language and as a way of them expressing what's going on for them as a way of bringing their inner world kind of out into the outer world. So we, um, we follow their lead, we uh, play alongside them if they want, we observe if that's what they want, and we reflect back any feelings that we are kind of witnessing in the play therapy space, and we reflect that back to them in a way that uh, will be insightful to their behaviours. <clears throat> Because lots of the children that come to play therapy, they've been referred for various reasons, but often um, behaviours are difficult, not just for the child to manage, but for teachers, for parents, caregivers. And so um, the play therapist role is kind of, well, I, I often use this wonderful quote from a, a play therapist, uh, from a supervisee, actually I supervise a lot of other play therapists and she's kind of given me the permission to say this. She says, we shine a light on behaviors with compassion. And that kind of sums it up to me. And I've, I've also added a little bit at the end. We shine a light on behaviors with compassion and curiosity. Curiosity is a really important part of our work. We invite curiosity. Well, we sort of, we, we offer it. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm noticing that and I'm really curious about that. So it's a sort of a really safe space for the child to become curious about their own behaviours. So I think that kind of sums it up, that, you know, what my wonderful supervisee shared there. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a lot I'd like to ask you about that. But just go on from there and explain that, because you were saying about the creative attachment therapist, mm, just mm. broaden that out to, to that. Yes, yeah, so I was working with children, first of all, in an adoptive um, support agency, so children who'd had really uh, difficult starts and their attachments were very insecure. And from there, I went to work in a school that was in a very sort of challenged area. And the children I was working with there, I recognised they were presenting with behaviours that linked to insecure attachments. and. 
I was just thinking, oh, I'd really like to get back to these children as babies um, and work with them and their mums. You know, obviously, that you know, their mums, because you can't really work in the same way with babies. Um, and I was, you know, I was thinking about this for a long time and really, really sort of wondering how I could do that work. And at the same time, a long time, alongside my play therapy, I was also running um, a, a singing and music group for mums, babies and toddlers with, with, with my colleague, Katie Taylor, who's a core process psychotherapist. And a, a mum shared with us one day that she'd had um, postnatal depression and she'd been hospitalised with it and that she found that the singing in our group was particularly helpful and healing for her and her toddler. And Katie and I kind of, this really struck us. And this is also alongside the fact that both Katie and I suffered with postnatal depression ourselves with our first, uh, with our first children. So we kind of pulled all this together and we set up a pilot project working with mums with postnatal depression and their babies using song and music and also talk, talk therapy as well in it. And from that has grown um, a programme called Rockabye. Mm -hmm. um, which works with, which is funded by the city council and the NHS, and works with mums and babies. So, so I, you know, I found that I was able to go exactly where I wanted to be, back to mum and baby, and really support that attachment, that bond. Um, from that, we've also felt like, oh, we just want to go back to the mums when they are pregnant. Um, you know, to sort of really try and get right at the start of that um, cycle. And so we've also grown a new project called Antenatal Rockabye. So kind of creative attachment therapy. The therapy is, the focus is attachment between mum or caregiver and child and we use creative um, the creative uh, methods to explore that so we use obviously music and singing we use art we use yeah dance and then in my work with children and families I'm also again working with adopted children and their adoptive parents using everything you know whatever's to hand clay um, crafts drama Okay, so just um, I want to ask you the, the blindingly obvious question. Okay, like you, you see, you're seeing these children when they're at school age, and things have happened in their lives which have led them to ha having behaviour that's outside the norm, and you're trying to address that with them. And then the obvious thing is, okay, well, let's start earlier and earlier. Let's get it yeah. when the problems are rising. But it, it's it's almost too obvious um, to ask. But I, I want to ask and, and flesh this out of you. What's um, What's so important about that early life period and the early contact between baby and mum and maybe dad um, that's, that sets the child up for life? Because I know it's a big part of your work is attachment theory and the way the brain develops in the first six months, first two years. So could you just explain that, that whole thing, please? Yeah, so, well, attachment theory underpins my work and that's the theory of uh, John Bowlby. Uh, developed in the 1950s um, that kind of arose out of looking at uh, all the kind of orphan babies um, after the Second World War and um, kind of countries coming together and sort of using this terrible, terrible uh, catastrophe that happened to kind of explore what babies actually need. Um, and from that arose this recognition that babies need 
uh, a secure attachment to a caregiver. Um, and that was, so that was, you know, developed a long time ago. And it's interesting because it's actually, I think, it's taken all this time for it to be, to really kind of take foot and take root. I think the attachment theory is just beginning to kind of spread its wings, even though it's been around for a long time. And, you know, some people in the field have talked about it. So the work of John Bowlby, um, what's interesting now is that, neuroscience is just being able to confirm everything that Bowlby wrote so that we know that babies come into this world. In fact, it starts in, in utero, that the brain is um, dependent upon the mother's emotional well-being. So that we know that if mum is going through difficult times, perhaps she's in a, an abusive relationship, perhaps there's lots of uncertainty, perhaps there's lots of stress at work, that cortisol, the stress hormone, it crosses the, the placenta. And what cortisol does, it's, it's a kind of pruning of the neurons. So I want to add here that we all experience stress, we've all experienced stress, and small doses of stress and cortisol um, are probably actually really good for our system. However, prolonged periods of stress will affect the architecture of the baby's brain. And so, you know, just thinking about another study that happened after the 9-11, again, an awful, awful catastrophic um, event. Scientists kind of use this to look at, you know, how this might have affected some pregnant mums and their babies. You know, they found they sort of they found that the babies that were born to mums who'd been in, uh, kind of involved in what happened, they were born with the hippocampus, which is a little bit at the back of the brain, um, which is to do with memory and learning, quite severely impaired. Um, they checked up on those babies a year later, and babies that were fortunate enough to be kind of born into very sort of secure. Uh, uh, parents, sensitive caregiving parents, the hippocampus had grown to its normal size. However, for those babies who were born into families where the situation was not as stable, the hippocampus remained kind of m much smaller. Now that's going to have a huge impact long term on that baby. Okay. Um, yeah, go ahead. So there's two things that um, strike me there. Um, the one is, like you say, it's, it's been around since the 1950s, this work, yeah. and it's only just coming into Mm. or now well in some ways that doesn't surprise me because it sounds quite countercultural. cultural um mm. or 1950s britain okay and i think we still have the the idea of leaving babies to cry around so they get used to it um yeah. so that's one thing uh, maybe you could address where, where like the culture is on that mm. thing. Mm. Uh, there was a, a hint of optimism just at the end there because you seem to uh, suggest these things are correctable yes. some, if you yes. get a bad start there's something, there's a, a neuroplasticity, I think is the term. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe so, you want to pick up on those, on those themes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, it's incredibly hopeful, as you say, neuroplasticity, um, so that the brain continues to refire, rewire new pathworks, uh, pathways are forged through that incredible neural forest in there. Um, and the sooner that we can get to people, so yeah, in utero, infancy, toddlers, 
um, children, the richer, the kind of the great, because the brain is going through such kind of amazing, accelerated periods of growth and learning, that is the time to get there. However, the hope is, is that, you know, actually the brain continues to kind of, uh, yeah, sort of uh, evolve throughout our lifetime. They've even seen it in 80 year olds. So, so there's the hope. I can't remember the other question that you asked. So I'll there. come back to that one because it's more of a societal question. I think so. Maybe yeah. we'll talk a bit more about um, about individuals at the moment, and I might ask you about like the wider implications to society. So, but yeah, it's um, so. What do you see then in terms of changes when you're working either with um, with new mothers, with pregnant mothers, mm. in terms of their relationships with their children, or with the children themselves when they go through this mm. process? What kind of shifts do you see occurring? Yeah. So I'm thinking about the mums. Um, so thinking about, I'll, I'll start with my mums who have babies. So many of the mums who come, they are depressed, they are anxious, they are struggling with the huge adjustment to motherhood. I mean, let's go back to the cultural thing again as well around motherhood. Um, you know, we're told that these are the happiest, you know, you're, you're supposed to be joyful and happy and over the moon you have a baby. That is the pervading image of motherhood. However, recent research has just come out very clearly saying women are most vulnerable to suffering with mental health problems in pregnancy and the first year of their baby's life. So this is in direct opposite. However, that image is very strong and, you know, I hear mums say, on, oh, on I go on Facebook and I see all these happy mums and they look like they're coping and I'm not. So, you know, there's this real sense of isolation then. So for a start, we, we let them know that and there's huge relief. Like, oh, this is normal. You know, we make it extremely normal. We, we use something called selective self-disclosure where we share our experiences. Katie and I share our experiences. Um, we invite mums to, so going back to mums will arrive very depressed, which means that babies are often depressed. Now that's quite a hard thing to hear, but we've seen babies who are not smiling, who might be more interested in looking at the lamp than faces because that's safe. I don't know if you've ever seen the still face experiment. Have you seen that one, Richard? Um, I think you've described it to me, but please describe it. It's really you. incredible. And anybody can look it, look, look it up on YouTube. It's quite distressing, actually. It just shows, yeah, a baby, the mother is engaging, talking to baby. Mother's then told to turn her face away, and then she comes back with a straight face. Now, watching baby's response, it's just incredible because baby, first of all, is not sure what's going on. Baby will try to engage mum again. That might be in smiling again, you know, using what we would call attractive um, attachment behaviours, which is smiling, sort of charming. That's not working. Baby starts to get distressed. Baby becomes very, very distressed. And that is just through mum holding a neutral face. Um, so the babies that come to us, many of them are used to mum's uh, neutral face or even distressed face, which is also very scary for baby because babies read the world through their caregiver's face. I'm using the word mum here um, and I'm aware that, you know, that there's lots of other scenarios that dad sure. now might be the main caregiver. Sure. So I'm using mum, but it can grandparent, foster care, dad. Um, so babies often will be looking at lamps because it's too distressing for them to see mum. So first of all, what we're going to do with mum is we're going to invite her to be curious about what baby might be feeling. 
Um, and we're going to use things like streamers and ribbons and music and song to start to engage with baby. Um, creating a very safe space for mum to be wondering what might be going on for baby. We're building that attunement. What we're trying to do is bring mum and baby's kind of faces back into um, you know, into line with each other. Um, so kind of going back to the songs, we, we, we choose songs where mum has to face baby, you know, like row, row, row your boat. Um, we have other songs that have kind of been made up for our, for our programme that involve them looking at baby, engaging baby. Um, so by the end of the 12 week programme, we see a huge difference we will see that mum and baby are in attunement, that mum is, is uh, trying to engage with baby, make baby laugh, make baby smile. A lot of our activities are very joyful. And, um, and we notice that babies have started to look at mum, look at people, smile. So, um, you know, it, it, usually within 12 weeks, we're seeing great progress. For some very poor, poorly mums, we will, they'll go on to another programme. But we've not had, um, you know, we've had, you know, nearly 100% success rate. We evaluate our work. And what we hear back from our mums is that it's been a lifesaver and that it's helped them to be able to interact with mm. baby and hold baby. And so presumably the hope is that then you don't meet those children five, six, seven years later in play therapy <laughs> sessions. Exactly, which is, yeah. And, 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 you know, the, and just going back to your question about the changes I see, so going down the line with the children I work with, that's longer. That isn't always a 12-week process. However, slowly, slowly, we start to shining a light on those behaviours with, with compassion enables the child to start, oh, I wonder. I wonder why I do respond like that. And we'll, I'll bring in neuroscience with them and we'll, we'll make brains, we'll talk about the brains, we'll talk about you know, what might have gone on for them when they were babies, so that they start to build um, kind of an awareness around themselves. And also not to feel, you know, to understand that their behaviours are in are sane responses to, uh, to trauma, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you about society, but I just want to go on a little tangent. When you've talked about using play to interact with children and some talk therapy, okay, well, when we get to adults, we would think generally in terms of talk therapy, okay? Um, however, I've done stuff with you with plasticine and uh, sand where you've given uh, examples of your work. We've had workshops or just in the room you're sat in now, right? and you've shown me what the tantra was all about. Um, so I wonder, how do you experience the difference? I know you're, you're not a therapist who works with um, adults, so I don't know how to ask you about the contrast between the two, but I think you can get like, like some sense of it, right? In, in how, what's the difference with children in how they access that deeper level of awareness where they see that there is there's something beneath the surface they're not aware of that's driving behavior. Yeah. And how the play um, in children or in adults can, almost bypass the the blocks we put up to being aware of that level and our more subconscious drives just come pouring out into the sand how, how do you find play as a as a way to access that mm, mm. so i i yeah i feel with well for instance the sand you talk about the sand um that's a good one to talk about 
because for me, and I, and, well, not just for me, but there's a theory around the sand as representing the archetypal mother-infant relationship in Jungian terms, which is about complete acceptance, complete love, um, safety, essentially. Something just about the feel of sand that can evoke that. It's not just sand. I think it's sand. I believe it's sand within a sand tray. It's 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 almost alchemical. It's mystical. And it's magical. But I think there is also. I think you can go down the sort of more neurosciencey route and kind of explain or why this is. Sure. Well, let's go. Let's go down the alchemical. Um, alchemical. <laughs> the more, the, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of the mystical route. Um, I don't know what it is. I experienced it myself on my training, but there was a point where I only had to look at the sand and I would be crying. Um, and I feel that the process starts when, you, when I went to choose the objects to put in the sand. So if, you know, it sort of representing this incredibly safe, safe space, I think this enables our defenses and perhaps the more the ego part of the brain to kind of just let go a bit so that we can access straight into the subconscious so this is very much what Jung would say as well that through the creative methods so whether it's sand or whether it's art that we are accessing the right side of our brain as well um, which uh, which is you know kind of our more emotional terrain um, so we can kind of go straight to there, bypass kind of logic, the talking, and be presented, for instance, in the sand, you know, with an image. Now, your, your question about, you know, that you as an adult will, would have a sense of what that meant for you. But, you know, would a, was that your question? Would a child kind of have that? I'm just interested in how, yeah, how, how it helps children get into that place, or anyone really get into that place of expressing behaviours going on beneath the surface. Mm. Well, I think with children, like with, I think with adults, I think when the adult comes to play, um, that the inner child is released. We also know, just putting a tiny bit of neuroscience in here, because I do like it, a little seasoning of neuroscience, is that when we're playing, when we're being creative, the feel-good hormones of the, the opiates, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin are released. And in contrast to cortisol, the stress hormone, this creates neural growth. So when children are, and, and adults are playing um, and being creative, there's lots of incredible healing stuff going on in the brain. Um, and it just, I think with children, they may not have the capacity to go, oh, yes, this must be, you know, my, uh, this must represent my, this is my mother figure and this is, you know, this is me over here. I thought about this and I don't, I think it's, the healing occurs anyway whether their thinking brain okay. analyze it we don't analyze in our work um we just allow you know the client to observe and if they want to make observations and certainly for our teenagers that we work with they sometimes have the capacity to start to make those links um, but that's not the be all and end all for me about it it's just having that space where the subconscious is flowing through and the subconscious is being given a voice because I feel that we're, you know, well, we're driven by our subconscious. Um, so here is a safe space for the subconscious to be given free reign in a, in a, in a totally accepted um, environment.
So yeah. Yeah, that's that's that makes perfect sense. Yeah, um, and it, it leads me on to ask when we were talking about the mystical and the alchemical. I know that um, your your journey through therapy, working in it, undergoing it, has been intertwined with a kind of spiritual. Mm. And we met in in groups to do with um, spirituality and non-duality and these yeah. things. How does that kind of strand of thought infuse into your work or development? Mm. Does it? Is there a connection there? Do you feel? Do you feel it's helped you in your work? I, yeah, hugely. I mean, I feel it is interwoven into my work as it is interwoven into my life. So I, I, I couldn't unpack it. For me, there's something about um, the d divinity in relationship, divinity in everything, but very potently in relationship, which is where, where we met on Tim Freak's um, mystery experience, which um, really, uh, you know, um, showed me that in a very beautiful way. And I was actually able to take that back to my work. Um, because as play therapists, as creative attachment therapists, the greatest resource in our room is ourselves. You know, we can have all these wonderful things. The sand is amazing, you know, music is amazing, and they're great what Daniel Stern calls ports of entry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for some teenagers, we, we, use, uh, we use gadgets, we use computers, if that is the port of entry. However, the most the port of entry into the relationship between the therapist and the client and for me there's a divinity in that um coming bringing just a little bit of brain into it again um louis cosolino who's a sort of psychotherapist um who's written some some fantastic books talks about you know the synapse uh the kind of the synaptic gap between the neurons you know that when information is passed and he also talks about this social synapse this synapse between you and i and that kind of this flow of information and um messages communication that is flowing all the time for the therapist and the client it, that's just so important the therapist to kind of tune into the client and it's you know I can't really describe it but it's there's a divinity in that and there's a healing in that we know that loving nurturing safe relationships um, are healing you know they heal traumas they heal they heal wounds and that kind of healing that ability to heal to mend resolve it's kind of it's it's there's a divinity there for me so I talk about agape a lot, you know, with my, I don't talk about it with my clients, but how I, with my supervisees, you know, I grow to love my clients. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's agape, it's, you know, it's, it's compassion, it's... Agape is the Greek word for a kind of unconditional, compassionate love. Yeah, yeah, I think in the Buddhist term, the Buddhist word... Uh, loving kindness yeah. and compassion would translate so that's always present um in in the room with me with my clients thank you that's perfect as an answer and um, the last thing i'd like to ask you about is the wider social implications of your work and i suppose also the social implications of the absence of this kind of work okay so we mentioned earlier about this really being discovered back in the 1950s, but it taking a long time to come into culture because yeah. it's not necessarily cultures, the yeah. idea it presents, okay, of how you should 
um, interact with with children. Um, and I've also I've been aware that sometimes people who are into political activism or interested in how to change the world for better on a grand scale, mm. um, when they become frustrated with their their efforts um, through conversing with adults, say, and distributing information or political rallies, they start to turn their attention to like why do we have the adults we have, and why do they have the capacity for rationality they have and why um are people susceptible to manipulation through propaganda say mm. um and start to look back at early childhood experience as mm. a way of it because so you have like from negative early childhood experience could grow a, a propensity for criminality say mm. socially mm. very bad um and i know how you you've talked about the, there's a certain small number of families in britain who cost the state some disproportionately massive amount of money um and also, in terms of if you want to question the kind of power structures we're under and have a progression towards a kind of revolution, you need people who have that capacity for um, a certain capacity for rationality and reflection to be reflective yes. of others' ideas, mm. which can be badly affected by early childhood experience if it's negative. So. Uh, and the other thing I've, I've heard you say about it, uh, you pointed out to me years ago that you felt that the two wars in the 20th century had a, a really terrible impact on mm. British psyche because mm. of the early childhood experience created around them and uh, mm. lives on to this day. Mm. So I wondered if you could, that's not really a question, it's just a, a, a string of points I've made, but I wonder <laughs> if you could address. Yeah, just clarify. <laughs> The, um, the 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 problems in society if we don't address early childhood experience yeah. and what the possibilities are if we really really did like what kind of society we could shape yeah. through that yeah. yeah well yes i i agree with everything you said partly because i've said it to you yeah <laughs> that's why yeah. um i i just yeah it's so important that there is early intervention. You know, how do we break these cycles of um, you know, poor attachments that, as you rightly say, you know, lead to just huge costs to society on all levels? Um, another, I was at a, a, a launch event at the Bristol University at the moment, who are doing some amazing studies. I, I may have been saying to you where they've put head cams on mum and baby. Mm -hmm. Watching interactions but they started with saying you know um, current estimation is that the impact of trauma passed down to the next generation is 8.1 billion pounds to the UK economy at the moment you know um, so kind of with that knowledge and that's just the financial cost you know um, yeah, and I guess it's a conservative estimate right because that's that's what you can measure yeah exactly exactly you know and, and what springs to mind is i think i was telling you also listening to gabor mate talk um and him saying that in, you know he's born in budapest in 1945 kind of um you know the tanks were kind of ready to roll in uh into budapest and um his mother he was only a couple of months old and his mother phoned the doctor and said oh dr gabor's crying and the doctor said um 
all my Jewish babies are crying. Mm, yeah. All my Jewish babies are crying. You know, of course, babies don't know about, you know, the Holocaust, um, but they're picking up. So for Gabor Mate, who's grown up, he didn't know, obviously, at that point, he's later found out what was going on then for his mother. But he talks about the impact of that of trauma and how he's passed it on to his children. So he became a workaholic because he felt he needed to be needed and he neglected his children. So the kind of, it just goes on and on. Poor attachments, mums who are stressed. And I think something that really concerns me at the moment is that in work, mums now are expected to work up to 38 weeks in their pregnancy. Now, when I was pregnant, it would be, you know, 34, 35, that was expected. You need, and that's quite late, Mothers need time before their babies are born. It impacts, I firmly believe, and they're doing research at the moment on the birth. Birth is a big impact, a big factor in post depression. You know, so the, the wide, the long-term um, impact, you know, is huge. You're talking about depression, you're talking about criminality, teenage pregnancy, drug abuse. Um, it's big, you know, and it spreads out. And how to address that is, I believe, early intervention. You know, th this government have just pulled, you know, we're in austerity at the moment. So the children's centres, the children's centres came out of Tony Blair's Every Child Matters, up following Victoria Climbier. I never know if I say her name quite right, but um, you, do you remember that, Richard? I don't remember the name, no. Okay, well, she, she was a little girl who uh, was killed by her caregivers. It was her aunt. But they used disguised compliance, the aunt, to keep it hidden that this child was at risk. There was thoughts, you know, that the, the social workers, something's going on, but they weren't able to get to the bottom of it. She died. So Tony Blair, from that, created something called Every Child Matters. The children's centres were set up. And children's centres were just a brilliant way where every single pregnant mum was allotted to, allocated to a child centre, uh, a children's centre, and there was lots of um, uh, kind of different organisations working there. So health, social care, but very gentle, very family-centred, um, not intrusive. They've done some amazing work. You know, they've kind of been closed now. So, you know, this is austerity. This is also a government who's not willing to address the long term. Well, it's not, it's not worth their while, is it, to put this investment in now because the results are not going to be seen till much later. Um, but the evidence is quite clear. There's been lots of research around it that the sooner we get in there and support families, um, the greater the impact and the greater the impact to society in general, the more positive the impact to society in general. Um, okay, so I'm um, just as a, a final question then, Claire, um, I'm just going to ask you to be imaginative, and I appreciate there are like incentives that stop this happening, okay, for like election cycles and things, um, but if you could weigh the wand and have this kind of uh, intervention uh, rolled out massively, um, what kind of difference in society if you just, I, I'm not asking you to be accurate in this because mm -hmm. I'm asking you to paint a picture of the future and you don't have a crystal ball. But what kind of image of society do you think um, we would be living in 20, 30, 40 years from now if that trauma was really addressed right yeah. in those early years? I think we would be living in, a, in an environment where there would be greater self-respect, respect for others respect for the planet, 
I think there would be less aggression. I think there would be less inequality. I think, um, I think the work environment would be a lot easier. You know, teachers are having to deal with children with poor attachments. 40 to 45% is the current estimation. That's going to be easier. The impact on the NHS would be greater because poor attachments, there's been some very interesting research, Gabor Mate talks about this, um, how physical health, the immune system is affected by if you have, you know, if there are poor attachments. So I think just across the board, it, would, it feels like a utopia um, and um, it would be more loving. It would be more loving. I think there would be more of a focus on relationship rather than material gains, um, sort of nourishing the self through nourishing others rather than having to buy, consume. Um, it probably all sounds very hippie and idealistic, but I do feel that we are social beings and the current cultural attitude towards parenting is about kind of separation and ruthlessness and com competition. Whereas naturally we are, you know, we're meant to be together, to connect, to care, to respect. Thank you, Claire. I think that's <laughs> perfect hippie-ish moment to end it on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bring in the hippie-ish moment. Yeah. Um, okay, that, that's been a wonderful oversight of your work and the implications uh, of it, both on a personal and societal level. So Claire, thank you very much and oh, hope to speak to you again sometime. It's been my pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>